0: We're going through the book of Judges. Uh, we're on week 15, I believe it is. I don't have my notes, but I think it's week 15. Uh, when you're looking at the book of Judges, this is the last one we're going to be going through. And uh, then next week, Jerry's going to preach, and then I'm going to start the book of Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth is going to give life to Judges. I'll tell you, the book of Judges is a rough book. It is a horrific, dark time, a book that is in uh, the Bible. The darkest time for God's people. The darkest time for Israel. And the book of Judges just looks like this. They just turned away from God, completely turned away from God, rejected God. So, what did they do? God gave them over to their sin, and he gave them over to other countries. And then they just went into a pit, a hole. I mean, they were just oppressed, depressed, broken down uh, as they turned away from God. So, what did God do? He sent a deliverer. The deliverer was called a judge, and he would pull them out. And after he pulled them out, as long as the judge was alive, they did well. But after the judge was dead, what happened? They went right back to their situation again. So that's going all the way through the book. They're going in and out, in and out, in and out, and then you get to the end of the book, and it just kind of tells the depths of despair that the world is into. If you look at the um, the last stories in the Book of Judges, I preached on it the first weekend, so I'm not going to preach on the last stories. What did I talk about? I talked about everybody did what was right in their own eyes and this is what the world looks like if so. everybody does what is right in their own eyes. It's a horrible world. It's, it's hell. In fact, if you want to describe hell, everybody does what is right in their own eyes with steroids. And all it does is just cave within and you hate and you burn. And, and it just fries the person because you can't stand the next person. That's why it's so lonely. That's why it's a quenching fire. It is sin, full grown. You do what is right in your eyes, you don't do what is right in God's eyes. And we see it at the end of the book, the book of Judges. What it does to a world when that happens. Last week we talked about Samson. Samson was the last judge. So, what happens from Samson to the end of the book? Samson to the end of the book, there's two different waves that happen. There's a wave at the end, which I just mentioned, everybody does what is right in their own eyes, and it's horrific, it's ugly. But there is another wave that we're going to talk about this morning, how people get there, how people get there, or even to phrase it differently because we've been kind of comparing our country even to the nation of Israel. How does a nation get there? If everybody's going to do right in their own eyes, and it's going to be a living hell when it takes place because that's what it is, what is the first step to get towards that? direction. The first step is that we reduce God. We take a large God, and what do we do is we make him small. If everybody's going to do what is right in his own eyes, we're going to have to make God small before we can do it. We're going to have to take him down and be able to manage him. We're going to have to take him down and be able to control him. We're going to have to take him down and be able to rule over him, in, in other words, before this could ever happen. So we can even ask the questions, and we'll answer some of those questions, is is, where's America at? I mean, in the concept of reducing God, in the concept of making God small, where's America at? Tell you where Israel is at, and I'll show you how they did it. It's going to be through a story called Micah, his mom, and a Levite. The story is found in Judges chapter 17. And as we're looking at this, the whole story is number one in our notes. Micah and his mom shape a God who is convenient to worship. That is their job. We're going to shape a God that is convenient to worship. One that doesn't master us, but actually one we can master. Watch this take place, starting with chapter 17. There's a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother... The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from me about which you uttered a curse and also in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. He restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored it, the money, to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith and made it into a carved image and, a metal, and into a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And then a man had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So what's taking place? Micah. Who's Micah? Micah is just a fellow down the street. He's not a judge. He's not, uh, not not nobody. He's just somebody who just lives in Jefferson, just down the street, just has a little house and those things. He's living with his mother. Um, Micah was um, not just a, he, he wasn't a bad guy, but he wasn't a good guy. I mean, he stole from his mother, but then he was a good guy in the same verse because he gave back to his mother. In other words, I stole from you. Oh, mom, you put a curse on the person who stole from you. I'm sorry. I'm the one that did it. Here, and he gives, about, he gives the money back to his mother. That's what take it place. He's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy. His mother is just is just weird. I mean, she's just just weird. Number one is, she gives 1,100 pieces of silver back, and she says, I will give it back to the Lord. But she doesn't give it back to the Lord. She only gives 200 pieces of silver back to the Lord, and then she puts the rest into his pocket. But what does she do with the 200 pieces of silver? She makes a carved image, and a metal image, a, a shaped image into her house. You know, I don't know exactly what's going through her mind, but her son's lying and she's throwing out curses. So in that process, you need a God in the house. You know, we got to put a God in the house, a God that we can see, a God we can feel, a God we can trust, uh, that we can touch. Because that was an issue in the Old Testament. When you got the Ten Commandments, what took place? Don't have any other gods before me. But what's the second commandment? Do not make any graven images. Do not make a graven image. This is exactly what she was doing. We've got to get God in our house, so I'm going to make this image so we can see him, feel him, and touch them. Now, what we automatically think about is we think about we're in Judges, and that must be the God of Baal, or that must be the God of Astra. that must be another God. It is not another God. It is the King of kings, the Lord and lords, the Alpha and Omega, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, made into an image She's not making another God. She's reducing God to that. She's reducing God to that. Why? Because she wants to see him. She wants to feel him. She wants to touch him. She wants to be able to put him in his pocket. She wants to control him. And Micah's loving every bit of it. He's like, well, you know, if we're going to have a god in our house, you know, we definitely need some shrines and and we need a ephod. So he's getting some shrines, he's getting an ephod, which is some spiritual nonsense that comes out there to get all these things put together. And then, since God is so small, Micah says, "Oh, we need a priest." And he looks at his son and says, "All right, you can be the priest." You know, it's almost kind of comical in a sense that you know I'll be Zoro and you be Tonto. Half of you guys don't know what I'm talking about because you don't know who they are. So I will be Thor and you be uh, Hawkeye, you know, does that hit more bells. I mean, that's what they're doing in their home. They're playing these little games. We have God that is in our control, one that we can manage, one we can fix if he breaks, one we can take out of the house if we need to take out of the house. And, and since he's so small, we will give ourselves positions. And that's exactly what they did. They had positions. But then this happened. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of a family of Judah, who was a Levite, and sojourn there. And he departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he sojourned, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be my father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothing, and you're living. And then the Levite went in. He's looking for a place to stay, and he's looking for a place to stay to minister to the world, because what is a Levite? A Levite is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but they do not have any land in Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel mark out their land at the end of the book of Judges, but the Levites are the priest that is a priest to all of them, so they travel around and make sure that people are ministered to. They're like the priest. They're the godly people. So here Micah is, is like, whoa, there's a godly priest outside the door. So what does he do? He fires his son. You're no longer a priest. Now we got the real thing. <laughs> we got the real priest. We got the real McCoy. We got We got the one we've been looking for, and it cost him some money, and the priest is willing to do it because he's going to pay him some money. So sure enough, their momentum is growing, their, their, their church is growing, their God is growing. They're getting a whole outfit that's in there. They got God, Father. They got God, the Alpha, the Omega, then they got the ephod, they have the shrines. They have a real priest now, they don't just have a son, and, and they also have the ephod, so you can also put them, oh, what a good package it is, in this house. Story goes on, introduces some new people called the Danites. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. You know, I just said that all the tribes of Israel had land. That is correct, but not yet. Because the Danites, Dan is another tribe of Israel, they don't have land yet. They've actually been in the hillsides, in the hill countries. Where are we going to find land? We've got to have land. We've got to have land. We're supposed to we're at twelve tribes of Israel. We've got to find the land if we're going to be a twelve parts Of Israel. So they're looking for him. So what they did is they sent 12 or five spies out to spy out land. Now these spies are coming with about 600 soldiers behind them. And as the spies are looking at different land to say, okay, should we take this land? Should we take that land? Where should we go? Um, They will go back to their 600 soldiers and then they'll attack and then they'll own this land. Well, these five spies end up where? At Mike and his mommy's house. (laughs) walk into Micah and his mom's house and as they walk in, they, they're not telling him to despise, but they're having conversations with him uh, just to see if they want to take over the town of Zora because that's what they're looking for. Yeah, a, a town. Do we want Zora? And as these spies stayed in Zora, they decide they didn't want Zora, but as these spies are, um, are with Micah and his mom, as they stayed with Micah and his mom for a while, they noticed the image. And then they ask, what is that? And, you know, Micah, he says, well, that's the Almighty. <laughs> that's the Alpha and Omega. You know, that's the God of Isaac. That's the God of Jacob. That's a, that's a God of our ancestors. That's, that's the creator of the world. And, and the five spies are going, oh, my goodness, you have God here in your house? Oh, yeah, we also have a priest. See, he's a Levite even. He's a real priest. We got the ephod. We got the shrines. We got the whole nine yards. And their spies are looking at him and saying, you guys are the big deal. It's like, yeah, we are. We're the big deal, and spies thought it was such a big deal that before they left, you go to the Levite. Could you like give us like a blessing? You know, we're trying to find some land, and we just wonder if you could do some spiritual blessing. And, and the Levite says, yeah, "Sure, I'll give you a blessing." So he, you know, whatever you do to give somebody a blessing and and uh, makes some spiritual move, and they get all excited. And the five spies walk out. Five spies walk out of Zora because that's not the town they're going to take, not the country they're going to take. But Aish was just right next door. And so what they did is they, they looked across right next door to Aish. Laish, I'm sorry. I said Aish, it's Laish. And uh, as they're looking next door to Laish, they like, you know what? This is where we're going to go. It was a, a country that they can easily take over, it would cause much blood. It would not cause, it would be horrific to take it over. This is going to be our land. So the spies were looking over and then the 600 people start to come up on the hillside to look over the land before they take it out. Five spies start to think, you know what we need is we need God to go with us, to take us into this land. And then they started thinking, we know where God is. We was just at God's house. They said, well, let's go get God, you know, at Micah's house. Let's go get God. You know, he's got everything. He's got God, which is in, made in this little image. And then he also, you know, he has, a, he has an ephod. He's got all the shrines. Let's just go steal it from him. And they have an army of 600 people if they need help. But the five people are like, we don't need an army. We'll just take five people and go get it from him. So they take five people. Before we go into war, they run back to Micah's house. And they just walk in the door and pick up. You know, the idol and start picking up the ephod and start picking up the stuff. And all of a sudden, who catches him? The Levi. Levi says, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just stealing God. And because uh, we might need him, you know, as we're going into war. And, uh, and, and the Levi confronts him, says, you can't do that. <laughs> and then the Danite says, well, why didn't you come with us? <laughs> and the guy says, well, Levi says, well, I'm called to be here. They said, so let me rephrase that. Why do you come with us? <laughs> Micah's like a, a guy. He pays you a little bit. We're like a tribe. We can give you a lot of money. And then the Levite thinks twice, you know, maybe God is calling me to go with you. Let me get my stuff. And so he goes and gets his stuff. And then the Levite walks out the door. And when Micah finds out, he starts to yell, Mahom! They just walked out the door with our Almighty and our Levite. God's gone and the Levite's gone. Well, that's unacceptable to them. So, mom and Micah says, We got to solve this problem. So Micah runs to his neighbors, and as he's running to his neighbors and grabbing all the neighbors he could possibly find to go tack those five guys to get the God back, get God back, um, he starts to run after them, confronts them with his neighbors, and starts to yell at him. And as he's yelling at the guy, the Danites who took their God, this is what the Danites said What is the matter with you? What have you come with such company? They look at him and say, you're messed up. What's going on? What's taking place? And this is what Micah said. You take my gods that I made, and you also took my priest, and you go away. But I don't have anything left. You took it all. How then do you ask me, what is the matter with me? I don't have anything left. He says, I don't have anything left. I'm going to have to get what you took. The Danite's like, Micah, shut up and go home. Just, just go home. And there's five of us here, but there's 600 of us here. We'll kill you if you keep on dealing with us. So Micah goes, oh my goodness, I guess I better go home. So what does he do? He turns around and goes home. The Danites go up to Laish, and they look over Laish, and then they end up going to war. And after they go into war with Laish, they, they win to take the land. And after they went to take the land, we said, well, we need God in control of this land. So what did they do? They built a temple, that, or, um, a tabernacle that was very similar to the one um, in Shiloh, which is the one that Moses was carrying. Very similar to that. And when they, they built that, guess what they did? They put that stupid idol <laughs> that Micah and his mommy made. And they put it at the center and says, oh, we have the king of kings. We have the creator. We now have the almighty And this is our God that we will worship. And you know what even took place in this history of time? Is that you had the tabernacle that was in Shiloh. And then you have Dan. And they're on two different sides of the country. I actually went to Shiloh and I also went to Dan as well. And on the two different sides of the country, half the country said, well, we don't even want to follow Shiloh where the temple or where the tabernacle is at. We're actually going to split and start going up to Dan because it's a closer walk. (laughs) So, you know, God's up there and also God's down there. You know, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was and those things. But you couldn't see God. You had the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't God. You couldn't see God. But if you go to Dan, I mean, you can touch him. You can actually feel him. He's actually... Small enough that uh, you can manage him. A lot of people ended up going to Dan. story ends. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershon, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity in the land. Until the day of captivity in the land. This is past Saul. And this is a long time. So they set up Micah's carved image he made. As long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So they had now two tabernacles as a result of what was done. They wanted to take God and make him small so he'd be personable. So he can be touched. So he can be seen. So he can be taken care of if he needs taken care of. So we can use them. I mean, the way you use them, you just take them with you when you when you go to war. They made God small enough to manage the first steps of degrading an entire nation, the first steps of making a nation turn into an absolute turmoil. We know the end of the story was preached. You know, 15 weeks ago, the end of the story of the Book of Judges was ugly. The first wave was adopted. Small God, big people. Big people, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So we do want to do that evaluation with our country. How big is our God? (laughs) That sounds really weird. You know, that sounds real. But how big do we think our God is? Will be the question. Do we reduce him? Do we make him small enough? To manage him. Do we make him small enough to control him? Do we make him small enough to master him? We don't necessarily need what they used back in the Old Testament to say, this is how small God is. We can just do that with our mind. Because our mind will go different directions all the time. But in our mind, what takes place is we start to reduce him. And the smaller he gets, the smaller literally we get. I want to look at a couple things of areas that I just kind of picked out. There's numerous of them, but I just got four of them, of how we possibly could be reducing God. Number two, we think we are like God in intelligence. We live in a world where science carries a massive amount of power. It just does. If it's not scientific, it is not right. I mean, that's just where we're at. Science is the key all kind of in our country or in our world. You know, often when I read the Bible, I look at people's mistakes in the Bible, and uh, my instant reaction when I look at people's mistakes is, well, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you, know? you know, I wouldn't have been a part of hanging Jesus on the cross. Not me. You know, they did, but they're messed up. But not me. I wouldn't have done that. One mistake in the Bible I look at is Noah and the ark. I mean, nobody got on the ark. I mean, nobody but his family. That was it. Nobody. The whole world that's around. Nobody. Well, I would have got on the ark. Even if I was a part of his family, I would have gotten on the ark. But ask the question, would you? Would you have gotten in the ark? Just to look at this story from a perspective, pretend with me, that we take the 21st century and we pull it all the way back to Noah's time. 21st century, pull it all the way back to Noah's time. And we have all our technology... We have all the people, we have all of our homes. The world looked exactly what it looks like right now during Noah's time. And 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 us. We're here. In fact, we're so here is that Noah's just down the street building the Ark. How would we respond to him? Well, let's just pretend we give him the time of day. Just pretend we give him the time of day. The way we respond to him is, well, if we think he's right, we definitely gotta do some research. He says everything is gonna flood. Well, if everything is going to flood let's do some research we've got the technology to do the research we could take every cubic feet of water and measure it on our planet and we could even go into the air and measure the water that's in the air and we would have done that i would have done that we would have done that of course we would have done that because we need to see if he's a nut so what do they do we'd do it you want know to find out there's not enough water on the earth to cover the earth So that's what we would find out you won't find that out today but let me finish my story there's not enough water on the earth to cover the earth. Noah, if you're going to speak, you got to speak with it. one ounce of logic. One ounce that would be halfway consistent with science. As soon as we don't see that he's consistent with science, CNN would have loved it. I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, there's a nut on the street that says there's going to be a flood with so much water that the water doesn't even exist. Then it's still going to cover the earth somehow. But we know because we... Find out that it can't. CNN, NBC, ABS, ABC, all the newscasts, they would just be a mockery over. But come on, Fox News. I don't know if you like Fox News or not, but Fox News has got to put people on that boat a little bit. But would they put people on the boat? They would stand up and say, Noah is going to flood the earth with no water that can cover the earth. No, they wouldn't put one. on the boat. They'd lose all the ratings. You can't do that. Because we know fact. We know fact. Noah's not carrying it. What would the church be? What would the church do? Well, oh, boy, <laughs> this is a tough one. You now, we're trying to be real here. This is a tough one. you got to have enough water to cover the earth if you're going to flood the earth. That's just the way it has to be. Where would the church be? Where would you be? You know who else knew there was not enough water to flood the earth? It was God. <laughs> he knew there was not enough water on the earth to flood the earth at that time. So when he wanted to flood the earth, what did he do? He said he opened the floodgates of the deep, meaning split and open the earth, and the water blew out the top the bo- from the bottom of the earth. And as a result of the water blowing out from the bottom of the earth, today we've measured the water, and the water would actually be one mile above our head as a result of the earth literally opening up and blowing out to cover that whole earth. Before we all died, do you know what our last words would have been? Well, I don't know he's going to do that. <laughs> if he was going to do that, I would have done a little bit more research. I mean, we probably could have figured out there was water in the earth that was enough to cover the earth. But he didn't give us enough time to figure that out. Or he didn't tell us that we should have researched that. Because if we would have researched it, we would have figured it out. If we would have figured it out, we would have believed him. We just don't say, this is the way it is. Because if you say, this is the way it is, then you've got to figure out if that is the way it is. Because science carries more power on God. God doesn't chase science. Science chases him. (laughs) And what I mean by that, God speaks into things, into beings, and all of a sudden the formula just happens the instant that he speaks into beings. And where are we at in this picture? We're light years behind comprehending either one. Light years behind comprehending either one as we're watching that move forward. Do we reduce God? Oh, second God, let me see. I can't believe it until I figure it out. I can't believe it until I figure it out. God's big. Number three, we think we are like God in power. I'm going to bring up a political thing, but it's not really a political thing. It's more of a biblical thing. Um, I'll just say the words is global warming, um, climate change. Uh, So when when you hear these words, um, they do carry power. And the reason why we carry power is because I went down to the Grand Canyon and Lake Powell and Lake Mead are about empty. I want them full. (laughs) I wrapped the Grand Canyon. You know, I want to go again. I want them full. When they're empty, um, Las Vegas is not even going to have enough power and energy. This is a big deal with them being empty. And when you look at that, there is words that come out, which would be global warming. We live in a world where snow coverings have decreased. I mean, that has taken place. We live in a world where the ice sheets are shrinking. We live in a world where there's forest fires that are raging through the world. And as we're, these forest fires are raging through the world, there is a dominant word that gets presented to us, and that is global warming, um, either global warming or, or climate change. Is that word in the Bible? Or is there a word that's close to it in the Bible? The answer is yes, yes. There is a word that's close to it. And the word that is close to it is is drought. That's the word that is close to global warming in those things. What is the difference between drought and global warming? The only difference between drought and global warming is, in global warming, we are in charge of the weather. In drought, nobody asks the question on who's in charge of the weather we knew that God was. But just a, a simple twist of we actually have power to put water in Lake Mead, we actually control the power to make sure that the ice stops melting from above and stops melting from beneath. We have the power to do what? Make sure that the houses are stop burning in, in California, stop burning in Oregon. Uh, we have the power to prevent that. And what's that power being stated as? Is the word, we're in a drought, help? That's the question. We're in a drought, help. No, we don't use that word because you cannot say, we're in a drought. Cut me a check. <laughs> Sorry, you shouldn't mean to say that, but we can't use that word. We're in a drought. Cut me a check. One thing we can do is we could use the word We're in global warming. I will cool it off. Cut me a check. We are in climate change. I will change it back. Cut me a check. I'm not trying to point fingers anywhere. I'm trying to think about the power of God and the control that he has over the weather. And are we redefining his control? Are we redefining his control? To say it a different way, is there a new weatherman in town? The reason why I'm asking that is because there's good kids are going to grow up and ask who the weatherman is. Is it going to be God? That would be the question. Is it going to be God or is it going to be somebody else? We all want Lake Mead to fill up. We all want houses to stop. But we all want this. Is there any way that... We can be involved to make sure that it's fixed? The answer is yes. In fact, the Bible gives it to you. The reason why the Bible gives it to you is because God's the weatherman. Four areas you can do. Four things you can do. There's three things of God to do. I'll read it slow. This is what you can do. Number one, humble yourself. Number two, pray. Number three, seek God's face. And number four, turn from their wicked ways and then God does three things he will hear he will forgive your sins and then he does what he will heal your land. I did do a little bit of research and just what are we asking for to make sure that you know that um, the lake meat is filled and the ice the ice comes back what are we asking for it's cost about a trillion a year is what the world is asking for One trillion a year. One trillion says, I will give, put water in Lake Mead. One trillion, I will put water in Lake Powell. One trillion will say, I will will wipe away the fires that take place. One trillion a year. What does God ask? He asks us to bow our knees. The scariest part about where we could be at is that we would rather spend the trillion a year than to bow our knees. We'd rather spend the trillion a year than to bow our knees. To say, God, you're the weatherman. God, you're the one that is in control. This is the way it works. God says flood, it floods. God says burn, it burns. God says thaw, it thaws. The carbon in the air does not dictate any sort of decision. Now, I know it's like we've got to get rid of the carbon in the air. That's a whole different subject. That's a whole different. I'm just talking about the weatherman. Who is he? Who is he? And have we made him so small that we can manage him and that we can fix him? Just a concept of how small are we making God and how small is our children going to understand who God is if we get swallowed in the concept of how tiny he is according to the world. Number four, we think God can be bought kind of more towards the church. I go to church, and if I go to church, my life is going to work out good, but it's not working out good. It doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? You're buying God. God, I give you this. God, you give me this. God, if I don't give this, I don't understand. Maybe I should do it more, okay? Then you do it more. Then you do it more. Then you do it more. And as you do it more, you do it more, you do it more. You get less, and you get less, and you get less. And who do you hate? You hate God. Why? Because God can be bought. If we're good people, we get good things. If we if we give money, we get money back. You know, God can be bought. If I behave, my life is going to turn out well and cancer is not going to come my direction. My health will be all right if I do it. You try to buy God. I do this, you give me that. You know what? God doesn't want to be bought. God wants to be loved. That's it. That's it. He wants to be loved. And maybe if you're trying to buy him, I went to church and I'm not getting, I'm not getting. In fact, the more I give to God, the less I get. He's trying to tell you, just love me and stop it. Just, Just love me. Just have a relationship with me. That's what you call salvation and the top commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But we reduced him to a package of our needs. Story of Micah. They got all sorts of prosperity. They believed. In verse 17, that you'll see in your notes. They had all sorts of prosperity, as long as they had what? God. And when God walked out the door with the day and night, what happened? Oh my goodness, we're not going to be prosperous anymore. Because God left our home. The same mind thinking. If I can do this, then I can get this. Number five, we think the ways, that our ways are better than God's ways. There's many comments that are... Um, That are said in the world and um, said in the church that are um, kind of um, acceptable. In other words, it's all right to say. And uh, number number one, you know, I'm really mad at God. And we could even get to the point, you know, right now I just really hate God. You know, it's just, you know, God's just not doing it. And I'm not going to say. I'm going to say if you hate God, you're in trouble. I'm just going to say that. If you're mad at God, um, I'm not going to say that's horrible because things happen that are horrific, they happen. I mean, it's a rough world that we live in. It's a difficult world that we live in. So being mad at God is not horrible. But if you are mad at God, you are only mad at God for one reason and one reason only. And that is, is because you can't master him. You can't master him. You want your situations to change, and he didn't change it, and you are mad at him. You know what the concept is, is, any buddy or anything that you can master, any human you can master, you're going to hate. That's how it works. that's how God designs this. If you can master your mate, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to hate him. And the reason why is they'll never do what you want him to do. So what are you going to do? You're going to have to master them more and master him more and master them more. If you master somebody, you will turn into a beast against that person, literally. Turn into a beast against that person. I worked in an institution for 10 years. And and in that institution, uh, I worked with sex offenders, those who had horrific rapes, uh, those who had horrific crimes. And what are the driving the crimes? What are driving a, a rape? Is, is it a feeling that they want? Actually, no, it's not. It's, I want to master somebody, and and that is the drive that is sending them to the sick direction to turn them absolutely into a beast because they don't like the person or anything that they're trying to master don't master God he doesn't want you to master him. if you try to master him he doesn't do what you want then all of a sudden what's going to take place you're going to hate him I've been married for 26 years and moving on to 27 years here in July and, uh, and my wife and I have an issue And the issue is that um, she's different than I am. In other words, she's female and I'm male. That's an issue. (laughs) She doesn't think the way I think. She doesn't do the way I do. She doesn't understand the way I understand. I mean, this is the way things are supposed to work. And she thinks this is the way the things are supposed to work. And as a result of us being so different we got together. (laughs) And maybe this happened to you too. They call it marriage. And then when you get together, what takes place? You start rubbing shoulders. You start working on different opinions. You start navigating through life. Why? Because she doesn't always agree with me and I don't always agree with her. And as a result of this process of banging heads and, and making us try to understand each other and work on each other and not always agreeing and sometimes agreeing to disagree in the process. Do you know what we're walking in? It's called intimacy. <laughs> that's, in, that's what intimacy is. If she agreed with everything I wanted, there would not be an intimate relationship. But God put us into this relationship where we actually came from two different homes to walk together to connect us heart to heart, soul to soul, mind to mind. Does she do everything the way I want her to do it? No. Does she do everything the way um, I want her to do it? No, doesn't happen. Same way it goes with God. God wants a love relationship. He doesn't do it the way we always want to do it. He doesn't do it the way he should do it sometimes. He hasn't given me the things that he should give me, so I hate him. I throw him away. Well, I can't figure him out, and I don't understand this. A God who is a God of love would not have a hell, and therefore cast him out. A God who is a, a God of love wouldn't let me live in the life that I'm living right now, would not let my loved one pass away, would not let me go through my sickness. I mean, God doesn't make any sense, and the reason why God doesn't make any sense is because I don't understand him, and since I don't understand him and can't control him, I want no more of him. It's designed in a way that God's going to do things that you don't understand. For the purpose of rubbing your shoulders. For the purpose of actually, like the Psalms, getting close to him and pulling him towards you and having you say, why God, I want to figure it out and I ask for the answer to figure it out because I need this peace. My goodness, all of a sudden we're starting to get an intimate relationship with God. Why? Because we can't rule him. We can't control him. He does things we don't agree with. But we move to him, even as a result of not agreeing with him, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to find out the reason. And even if you don't find out the reason, when you get to heaven, everything will open up and said there is reason everywhere. There is reason everywhere. Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is, is the lion, and, uh, and he's just a beast. And it represents he represents God through the story of, as you read the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, Susan and the beaver, they were going to go see Aslan. And it's like, we're going to go see Aslan. And so we're going to go see Aslan. Susan says, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I don't want to get near a lion unless he's tame. You know, is he tame? Because if he's not tame, I'm not going to get close to no tame lion. And what does the beaver say? tame (laughs) oh no he's not tame but he's good but he's he's good all these things that are happening in life and whoa it's so untamed what's going on what's taking place and we have all these questions all these things that are happening is it a controlled environment no we live in a world of sin in a world of death in a world of pain and we say god i don't understand But you're good. And if I can't figure you out, put you in my pocket, and block you into a box where I can't understand you, I won't accept you, we need to stop it because we know that he's good instead. Because he says that he's good. Number six, we think that God is not any wiser than we are. We do have the simple words that I cannot believe in a God that would cause this thing to happen. What you're saying is that if I can't think of a good reason for it to happen, then it should not have happened. That's what the statement is. I cannot believe that God would allow this thing to happen. I cannot believe that God would allow that thing to happen. You are literally saying, God, I have a better reason for you than you doing we do it all the time. We're making them small. We're making them manageable. And when we see a situation, the situation isn't right for us. And we throw God under the bus as a result for it. Because in our concepts, he's not good. In the concepts that we are wise. Number seven, we in the world don't need a divine secretary small enough to manage. We need a God-sized God. Why do we need a God-sized God? Tell you, I need one because I do a lot of funerals as a result of doing funerals. I have people that sit exactly where you 're sitting right now, and they hurt deeply, and they want an explanation and they want hope. Micah made God into a box, something small that he can control he can touch. We make God into something small enough we can manage the weather. You know, we put God in this small, small piece. We need a God-sized God because people are dying as a result of sin. And people are living without hope. We need a God-sized God because families are being broken apart. We need a God-sized God because cancer is penetrating people constantly. As a result of cancer being penetrating people constantly, where do you go? You've got to find something bigger than the cancer. God's like, here he is, I am. It's here. And I can make it and move it and give you life even as a result of it, no matter what happens. Even at death, you'll live more than you were alive. I mean, that's the power of God. But if we reduce him and train our children that he's just not big enough so you can manage... Then we don't have any of that. God size God, if we little God creates little people. Little God will create little people. And if you're a little person, that's all we're gonna have on earth. We get rid of the size of God. Yes, we do. We all want to do what is right in our own eyes, and we're trying to get to that, and we gotta put God down so we can manage them. God knows best and says, Don't put me down. Don't make me small. Don't make me manageable. Because if it does, I might pull away and let you everybody do what's right in their own eyes, and then watch what takes place and watch what happens. Number eight: instead of using God to get your meaning in life, make God your meaning in life. The practice that Micah and his mom did of building an idol is are building this this um, this idol that was. You know, the Jehovah or um, the King of Kings, the Alpha, Omega, is a practice that um, other people did in the Bible as well. You know, when Aaron um, built the calf, you know, who are they worshiping when Aaron built the calf? They're actually worshiping God, you know, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, but they're worshiping an attribute of God. A calf meant what? It meant power. It meant strength. They wanted to touch him, they wanted to feel him, and they want him. God to lead them. So they'd take the calf, and they're going to put it before them into any battle and any war and say, we believe God and this is a God before us. The reason why God says do not make any graven image because a graven image would just give one attribute of God. And one attribute of God is practically no God. One attribute of God is no God. The calf was a God of power. <laughs> That's no God if it's just a God of power because you've got nothing but carelessness, craziness, and those things that take place. God was very adamant, you do not put me into a box that you'll be able to see, be able to touch, and be able to think about. And the reason why is because I'm coming to earth. I'm actually going to leave heaven. And I'm going to come to earth as a man that you can see and a man that you can understand. And I will make an explanation of my character, my thoughts, my mind, and my heart by going to the cross and paying for your sins. And then after that, I will go to the grave because I will be dead. And three days later, I will rise again. There's one thing that has to be in our image, God, that he says to look at. And it's that cross. And the reason why is it provides every single attribute of God in the entire existence. It shows it all. I'm sovereign and I'm in control. But the sovereign God who is in control is a God who loves you. It says that Jesus is the creator. What's the creator doing? The creator is dying specifically for us. The attributes of God just completely portray off that cross who he is. And so if we sit there and we think about it, it's in our mind and we mow it over and over and over and over and over. It's not a graven image, it's life. And life to the fullest. He died, he rose, he's my answer. Drive me all the way through life and all the way into glory after I die. Because you're the one that's in control. Don't reduce him anywhere. Just look at the cross. God, we just thank you for not being small. God, what would happen in a world where we are all in charge? What would happen, God, if we were in charge of the weather? (laughs) What would happen, God, if we were in charge of all our situations? What would happen, God, if we all received exactly what we want whenever we wanted? We thank you, God, that you prevent that from happening. And we thank you that you're sitting on the throne to make sure that's prevented from happening because, God, if we were God, we would ruin ourselves. We'd destroy ourselves. We'd wipe ourselves out. Thank you, God, for sitting on the throne. And then, God, we just got to say thank you for going to the cross because the throne says you're in charge, but the cross says you love us. God, we need it as people. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.